Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verse 11 today. So one verse, and I had someone tell me after the 8 o'clock service, they thought, wow, one verse. I want more than that. And they underestimated the Lord. Because what is packed in this one verse is some very potent truth. We return this morning to the book of Romans, uh, to this one verse, which is the climax of this great passage that began all the way back in, in verse 1. And it's the, the focus is on a believer's assurance of salvation, your security. He's going to pick up in verse 12 and move all the way through chapter 6 in a new subsection that's going to emphasize the source of our sin and also our redemption, and then in chapter 6, he'll talk about how we, we have an ongoing response to both, how believers deal with their sin, and, and then how we live for the Lord. But here in this final verse, Paul has one more thing to say about the blessings that accompany our justification. You recall Paul's main concern after his introduction in chapter 1 was to make sure that, that all people everywhere recognize their need for the gospel. I mean, he laid out the evidence that all people are guilty before God. The immoral man that rejects God in chapter 1, the, the moral man that misuses religion and tries to climb up to God in chapter 2, then, then all people in, in chapter 3, because we're all under sin, we all fall short of the glory of, of God, we've all sinned, and and after locking every person up under divine guilt, he then lays out the exclusive solution for mankind that, that God provides in the gospel in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through, through 31. And in, in verses 21 through, through 26, in, in just six verses, Paul presents the gospel in its purest form. I mean, if I was going to take someone to the New Testament... That, and I couldn't turn any place else but one passage that, to explain to them what is the gospel. Not my sin, but what has God done? What has he accomplished in the gospel? It would be Romans 3, 21 through, through 26. It's the synopsis of the, of the Christian faith. It's the New Testament gospel, the New Testament good news in a, in a nutshell. And verse 21 declares, but now... Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. It's been made known. It's been revealed. Revealed in the gospel that, that Paul preaches. It's a, it's a righteousness that's revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. It's been promised in the Old Testament. It's gained by faith alone. It's available to all. It provides justification, and it's freely granted by God's grace. And while it is freely granted to us, it came at a great cost to, to God. The means by which God accomplishes this justification of sinners is through redemption and propitiation, he says. Two big theological words, but redemption. In redemption, Christ purchased us from the slave market of sin and then an act of propitiation, an act of satisfaction he absorbs God's holy wrath by, by being the, the satisfying sacrifice himself. And, and God does it all that particular way so that through it all, he can demonstrate that he is both just 
and the justifier of those who have faith in, in Jesus alone. See, God doesn't just overlook sin or whisk it away. He pays for it himself through the cross of, of Christ. And that's what he lays out in Romans 3, 21 through 26. And then he immediately begins to give some implications of that. What, what are some realities that, that that gospel demands? And he says a gospel of grace, a gospel that has nothing to do with our works, it it means that there's no boasting before God because no works can be added to it. And it also means that we're all on equal footing because there's one God who saves all the same way. And it also means that the law is upheld because faith alone establishes the law. And then to prove his point, to, to, to prove his argument, he then in chapter 4 of Romans goes back into the Old Testament. God has always provided righteousness as a gracious gift, and man has always received salvation by, by faith alone. And to prove that, in Romans chapter 4, he looks to Abraham and he looks to David. And he shows that both of those great patriarchs were saved by faith alone. Abraham, the father of Judaism, David, Israel's greatest king. And so in chapter 4, Paul says salvation was by faith and not by works, it's by faith and not circumcision, it's by faith and not law. And the nature of that faith will be just like the, the nature of Abraham's faith. We will be saved the same way that Abraham was, was saved. And after all of that, Paul then turns the coin and he, he shows us that those who have received the gospel are eternally secure in, in Jesus Christ, which is the section that we're in. Romans chapter 5 through Romans chapter 8. And Paul summarizes all the promises and privileges that we have because we have been declared right with, with God. I mean, at the moment, a new believer places their faith in Christ, everything changes. I mean, they're they are transported out of Romans 1, 2, and 3 to Romans 5 through 8. We go from guilty to forgiven. We go from enemies with God to peace. We, we are no longer separated from God. We now have direct access to Him. We, we are freed from the power of sin and the curse of the law. We're, we're no longer condemned. We're, we're free. And Paul writes this section to give us an unshakable confidence about our salvation, which he provides by describing point by point, one by one, the blessings that, that this justification has secured where God has declared us righteous because of our faith in Christ, because of the work of Christ. Believe upon the Son, and you'll, you'll be justified. And that's a judicial declaration. You believed upon the Son. You trust fully in His work and His work alone. God then declares you righteous, even though you're not. And then He treats you as if you were righteous. He treats you as if you were just as righteous as His Son. And because of that act of justification, all of these blessings come, and you, you're secure. And we said if chapter 5 had a theme song, it would be blessed assurance, which is where Paul will, will point us back to one final time again today. And Paul doesn't just window shop. He doesn't just look at the clothes on the mannequin. He goes into the store, and he tries on every single article. I mean, in the dressing room, he takes us. Look at this one. Look at this one. Look at this one. Justification being made right with God is not only the first blessing that God's grace provides, 
but it carries with it many additional blessings. In fact, justification carries with it every other blessing in the Christian life. Meaning, if you have no justification before God, you have no blessing at all in salvation. And so Paul begins chapter 5 with some of these foundational blessings. He says we have positional peace, we have standing grace, and we have joyful hope. Look at verse 1 of chapter 5. He says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom also we have obtained an introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. Now he says we have all of these blessings, and I'm going to describe to you having been justified. And he says part of that justification, with it comes peace and grace and, and, and joy. And then in Romans 5, 3 through 5, he gives a second area of blessing which is related to our trials. Look, if you would, at verse 3. He says, and not only this, he's adding to the list of blessings, not only these blessings, but, the, but this as well. But we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. I mean, Paul reminds us here that trials are not an evidence that God has forsaken us or that God is somehow displeased with us, but for the Christian. They're actually a confirmation of his presence. We're not immune to the effects of the curse as a, as a Christian. I mean, we also undergo trials. We live outside of the garden. And yet, living outside and in those trials, the faith that we have activates in the, in the trial. And then it produces something in us. That faith does something in us that, that's totally different than what happens in the midst of a trial for an unbeliever. It actually produces a greater assurance in the, in the Lord. It produces these three reassuring blessings. We boast, we exalt, we, we rejoice in our trouble because it produces endurance and character and hope in us. And that's an evidence that we're His. And that help, the help that God gives us through the midst of that trial comes through the person of the Holy Spirit who pours out God's love in our hearts. Look, if you would, at verse 5. He says, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. I mean, His presence is another evidence of God's love and another evidence of our, of our security. And that experiential love that, that we sense because of the Spirit of God it, it is another. It's a love that's poured out at the beginning of conversion. And it's a love that remains during our entire Christian lives. I mean, once you truly consider the nature of God's love, it would be impossible for you to doubt if you actually, if you actually look at it through a biblical lens. And so, Paul holds up the biblical lens in verses 6 through 8. He gives us an exposition of the love of God. And in verse 6, he says, we catch a glimpse of God's love by looking at the objects that, that, that he pours out that, that love upon. I mean, it's expressed toward the undeserving. What's God's love like? Look at who He loves. It's the helpless. It's the ungodly. It's the sinful. It's the enemy. And in verse 7, we're told that, that human beings don't love like that. Even the pinnacle of human love, God's love is higher still. And then he says in verse 8, if you really want to see a demonstration of God's love, look to the cross 
of Jesus Christ. God's love is demonstrated by the cross, and the result of that love is security for believers. So in verses 9 and 10, he says that includes an unshakable safety that's provable by sound reason. Look, if you would, at verse 9. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For, here's the explanation, for if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. I mean, Paul says, if God reconciled you, if God poured out his love on you while you were a hostile enemy, that's a much greater feat than safeguarding you now that you're his friend. I mean, now, if you've never been reconciled to God, then you're in great danger, and, and, and you shouldn't kid yourself that, that you're not. But if you're in Christ, I mean, the reasonable argument that Paul makes here is if God has already done the most difficult thing in the universe, which is to reconcile and justify ungodly sinners to Him, a holy God, how much more can we trust Him to accomplish a much easier thing, which is to save a forgiven and righteous friend from wrath on the last day, the day of judgment that's coming? I mean, Christian, God wants you to know that you are secure in Jesus Christ. And He wants you to know that so you'll be free to serve Him And there's one final blessing that he will outline for us this morning, and it's the greatest of all of the list that he's given. Now, I don't know if you have ever seen, when Christmas time's coming, I don't know if you've ever seen some of those presents where you you have this big box, and you open up the box, and you take the lid off, and, and then down inside that present is another box. It's another present. And you open that one up, and then you, you find another one, and then another one. And you get all the way down to this, this itty-bitty little box inside. And, of course, it's something very special, it, unless it's your brother or your sister doing that to you. If it's your, if it's your spouse, you know, or you're, you know, somebody that loves you, you're going to find a really special gift down in there, maybe a diamond ring or something. I don't know. It, it's like, the, it's like the, um, the Russian nesting dolls. Well, Romans 5, 1 through 11 is like that. I mean, you open one blessing and you find another tucked inside. And you open that one and you find another. And there's one final climactic blessing of our justification that Paul explains in two parts in verse 11. This one final climactic blessing that accompanies our justification, Paul says, we rejoice in God. That's the blessing. God's the blessing. And then he says we rejoice through the work of Jesus Christ. That's the ground of the joy in which we stand. The blessing is we rejoice in God, and we're able to do that. We do that because we've come through the work of Jesus Christ. A very simple and straightforward passage. But what a helpful one. Look, if you would, at verse 11 again. Here's the first explanation that he gives. It's the blessing itself. He says we rejoice in God. And not only this, but we also exult or we glory in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Now, if there was ever a place in Scripture where we should pay attention to words, it's, it's this. If this is the climactic blessing... Paul's words matter. 
And I want you to notice that Paul issues a qualifier in the introduction of this verse. He says, not only this, but also this. Or, more than that, but we also. So the first thing you have to figure out in order to understand this verse is, what does Paul mean by this? I mean, what is he contrasting uh, this final blessing with? I mean, what is it much more than? And there are two legitimate options that, that, that you have to consider. I mean, Paul is either bringing us back to verse 3 in this list of blessings, or he's just continuing his thought from verse 10. Look, if you would, back at verse 3. Here's the first option. Notice the similarity. Verse 3, And not only this, but we also glory or we exult in our tribulations. It's a very similar statement. And so, if it's verse 3, then Paul is now saying, not only do we rejoice in our trials, but we also rejoice even more in God. And that's an option. The other option is he's just carrying on his thought from verse 10. So look at verse 10 and kind of get a, 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 running, uh, get a run at, at, at verse 11. He says, For if, while we were enemies, in verse 10, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our, our, our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's also an option. But frankly, I think both of those fall short of the, the climax that Paul has been building to and that he's providing here. I mean, if, I think if you look closely, I think Paul is drawing not just on verse 3 or in verse 10. I think he's drawing on the entire passage, on the entire list of blessings here. I mean, he's contrasting everything he just said in making this final conclusion. I mean, he's saying, what is more than peace with God? I mean, what is greater than Christ dying for enemies? What is greater than the hope of the glory of God and the, and the Holy Spirit pouring out God's love in our hearts? What is greater than all of these amazing blessings is what I'm about to say to you now in verse 11 and the ultimate climactic blessing or result of justification is we get God Himself. I mean, we glory or we rejoice in the giver of the gifts, not just the gifts. Now, if there was ever a place in the book of Romans so far, if there was ever a John Piper verse in Romans, this is the verse, right? I mean, anybody that knows Piper, I mean, what do you get as a blessing of your justification that assures you, you get God, you know? The gospel is God, and that's because Piper's right. I mean, the ultimate goal, the ultimate end, the whole purpose of creation is God. That's what you get in the gospel. The gospel is God. And the proof that this is a climactic statement, besides that, that building up to this point, is, is verse 2 and 3 and verse 11, they, they have a similar concept of, of glorying or exalting, but they have different objects. I mean, do you see that in verse 3? It says, we exalt or rejoice in our tribulations. We rejoice in what it produces in us. It activates our faith. And that faith being activated, we trust God and trusting God and God does stuff in us through the Spirit, then it produces a substance to our faith and then we say, ah, we're the Lord's. We, we got through this and, and God was, was evident. 
In verse 2, it says we exalt in the hope of our glorification. We don't just exalt in God. We, we, we exalt or we, we, we rejoice in the glory of God, that we're going to share in His glory, that we're going to be glorified. The state we're going to be in, and beyond this light, it's to rejoice in heaven and all that it, that it provides in verse 2. But verse 11 has a completely different object that's much loftier than all those other ones combined. It's, it's not rejoicing in the hope of glory. It's rejoicing in God himself. Lloyd-Jones said, It's one thing to look forward with keen anticipation and with rejoicing to the ultimate state of glorification in which our very body will be glorified and we will be entirely delivered from sin when we shall dwell in the land where there is no sighing or sorrow or shame. But it is something even greater Glory in God himself, here and now. Did you notice that difference as well? Not only is the object different, but the timing is different. I mean, hope in verse 3 is something that we possess now, but hope is something that's fulfilled in the future. Hope is is what we possess right now. It's the the trust in the promise, but but the promise is to be fulfilled in, in the future. So our glorification is in the future. We have the hope of that right now. But verse 11 says we don't rejoice in hope of God. Verse 11 says we have God right now. We don't rejoice in a future hope. We rejoice in a present Lord, in a present God, not future rejoicing. Do you do that? Do you rejoice or do you glory in God right now? Only Christians can do that. Only Christians actually do that. I mean, which is why Paul ends this, this list of blessings with, with this, this climactic gift. I mean, Lord Jones, again, in that same commentary where he gave that earlier quote, he said, I've never known a rejoicing Pharisee. They don't rejoice in God, do they? I mean, he's right. Religious people are not happy people, not deep down. They're surely not happy in God. I mean, that's because they they only know about God. They only know about Him, but they don't know Him. And to know Him is to love Him. Unbelievers can rejoice in the thought of heaven, the reaching the state of freedom from sin, but but only a true believer rejoices in, in God. I mean, have you ever thought about that? Only a true Christian actually glories in the giver of the gifts, not just the gift. I mean... Anybody can get excited about the gift, but only a believer knows where it came from and values, treasures the the giver even more than than the gift. I mean, he sees heaven. A believer sees heaven not just as a place or as a home, but heaven is our chance to be near the one that, that we love. Or it is exactly as the Westminster Catechism states. It's what it means when it asks the question, what is the chief end of man? And you probably know it. The answer is the chief end of man is to glorify God and do what? Enjoy Him forever. Rejoice in Him. Glory in Him forever. It just simply means having God as our greatest delight. Delight in God forever. We glorify Him by truly treasuring Him. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul means means here. 
And again, you can see how only a real believer can do that. It's also why when you share the gospel with someone, you should be careful not to focus more on the place than on God himself. I mean, you don't want to focus too much on hell and on heaven and make that all about the gospel. Of course, you escape hell and you enter heaven. But the way you do that is Jesus. And so the focus is, is on him. I mean, many people want the benefits of God. Many people want the peace of God. They want a positive outcome of their suffering, the grace of God. They can even want their conscience to be cleared uh, or their sins forgiven. But the fundamental difference and the significant change that happens in conversion, that happens when you're born again, is your heart changes toward God. You actually love Him. Or as one said, the fundamental change in conversion is the sin that you once loved, you begin to hate. And the God you once hated, you begin to love. That's why genuine salvation can't be manufactured. It's why it can't be backed into. It's why, why religious effort won't get you to the Lord. A true Christian, one that has been regenerated and changed for him or her, spending time with God is not a burden, it's a delight. Reading His Word is not a religious duty, it's a, it's a rejoicing privilege. I mean, keeping His commandments is, is not a burdensome yoke, it's something that you do out of love. I mean, a genuine believer says what David says, I delight in the law of God. The same law that's a mirror that condemns us. I mean, how can David say that? How can David say, I delight in the Ten Commandments when you know full well that the Ten Commandments condemn you? You don't keep them. How can you do that? You can only do that if you know the God who by His grace has forgiven you of your sins and then put you right with Him. Now you see the law and you see how far you've fallen short and you rejoice in the one who forgave you and then you desire to fulfill it. That's not the case for the religious man or the hypocrite though. They see all of those things, including the commandments, as a, as a way to reach the end goal. I mean, Christ and His ways, church, whatever, they're all a means to an end. They get the religious person to a place. They don't get the religious person to a person. Unbelievers don't get the true joy of delighting in the giver of salvation, and therefore they never receive it. Because that's what salvation is all about. Look at what Jesus says in John 17, whenever he's preparing his disciples for, for, for death, for his own death, and he's praying here. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is eternal life. This is salvation, that they may know you. Do you know God? Do you rejoice in Him? Do you glory in who He is? 
I mean, is he the engine of your life? Is he, is he really the, the gravity that pulls you along? You're, 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 you're connected to him in, in that way? I mean, Paul says one of the blessings of justification is that a believer does that. We, we, we glory in God, in his person. And Paul saves this to the end because it's not only the pinnacle of our blessings, but it's a, it's a logical deduction. I mean, think about it. I mean, if God is the source of all of the blessings that he just got done saying, God's the source of our justification because it comes by grace. God's the source of our peace. He's the source of our standing. He's the source of the access. Uh, if he's the source of all of those blessings that we've been talking about, then why wouldn't we find him at the very end of the rainbow, if you will? I mean, he's the goal at the end. And James says it this way. Every good thing and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Now, you remember James, it's all talking about trials and, and, and the difference between a trial and a temptation. And, and, and James, in this passage, he, he's saying, don't think God tempts anyone with evil. Sin comes from within your own heart. God only gives good gifts. He, he, every good thing given comes from Him. And the greatest proof that He is a giver of good gifts is your salvation, which is what He immediately follows up with in verse 18. In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of firstfruits among his, among his creatures. The evidence that God gives good gifts, your salvation. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. Paul says it another way in a parallel passage in Philippians 4. Philippians 4.4. 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And, and, and this verse has a, has a resolution. It actually has a command to, to rejoice. It, it has a relationship. You rejoice in the Lord. It has a reach in every circumstance. And then it has a repetition. It says, again, I say, two commands in one verse, but the, but the same word. I was speaking to uh, Melissa's father uh, before Tom's funeral this past week, and he was talking about, talking about this passage. And he said, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. And then he goes on and qualifies it. And, then, and, and he says, uh, uh, you rejoice in the Lord always. And you rejoice in the Lord in everything. And then he repeats the, just to make sure you didn't miss it, he repeats the command. Again, I say rejoice. And you say, how can you be talking about that verse before a funeral? It's because the point of that verse and the point of Romans 5.11 is all about the object that we rejoice in. I mean, you don't rejoice in death. You rejoice in the Lord. If he's your object, then you can always rejoice in him. I mean, I don't think some Christians have figured that out. I mean, some Christians look more like they have been drinking from a pickle jar than from the fountain of life. I mean, even when they feel good, they feel bad because they know it's not going to last. I mean, you know somebody like that? Hopefully you're not like that. I mean, joy is vital. For, for the Christian life. It's, it's the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. It's an evidence that the Spirit of God actually lives in you, and it's a command for, for a believer. I mean, Jesus says it's one of the reasons that He saves us, one of the, 
one of the, the, the blessings. John 15, 11, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. It starts with my joy, his joy, being in you, and because of that, then your joy is, 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 is satisfied. It's, it's fulfilled. I mean, rejoicing in, in God is like the oil in a Christian's engine. I mean, just like running your car low on motor oil will cause uh, abnormal wear and tear. Trying to operate your Christian life with, with little joy will, will do the same thing. And you know this because you've probably tried it, like me. And you might be trying it even this morning. Which is why Paul brings this up at the, the closing instructions to the Philippians and also here in Romans. I mean, joy is that vital to the Christian life. But you should not confuse this glorying in the Lord or rejoicing in the Lord with, with some human emotion. By saying rejoice... Paul is, is not saying, cheer up or have a nice day. I mean, Paul's not Joel Osteening us here, okay? Rejoicing in the Lord is not a positive mental attitude or, or outlook. I mean, it's a spiritual work that comes from the presence of Christ. It, it accompanies justification. I mean, it comes in the participation in His sufferings. It's present in the loneliness of life. It, it knows all of His benefits are yours even when the blessings of life are not. It, rejoicing is how a true Christian expresses their faith in this life. That's why a therapist can't give you the answers to your questions because deep down they're spiritual and they're rooted in biblical faith. And don't forget, the same Paul that wrote these words in Romans when he wrote those words in Philippians, he wrote them from a prison. I mean, when we looked at that passage, when we walked through, through Philippians, I said, you know, when Paul says rejoice in the Lord, always again I say rejoice. This is not like the perennial skinny person who has the metabolism of a roadrunner say, lose weight, dieting is easy. I mean, this is somebody in prison. This is not the... 22-year-old youth pastor who's never had a kid before tell you, just pray more and you won't yell at your kids. I mean, Paul is a man living exactly what he's commanding at the very moment that he's commanding it. His life is not going well whenever he writes Philippians. Now, I want to pay attention to a guy like that, don't you? But we often get this command wrong because we think joy is like, like an emotion instead of an expression of our faith. You ever wondered how God can command you to have joy when all bad things are going on around you? I mean, if so, you're probably thinking wrongly about joy. I mean, Gordon Fee said the rejoicing that Paul is talking about here doesn't refer to a feeling but an activity. He's not commanding good feelings or a positive mood. Like, well, you, you just need to feel good about your life even though it's bad right now because God wants you to or even because God commands you to. That, that's not what the Apostle Paul means. That's not even biblical. It's not even possible. You can try to do that, and it's all emotion. You'll fail, and you'll feel even worse. What Paul is commanding is an intentional activity. It's an expression of what you believe, not what you feel. That can be present in the storm of suffering 
or accompanied with tears. It's an impossible thing to do without the Spirit. So without Christ, your only option is that dry secular well, which will get you nowhere. But even with the Spirit, it can be difficult because our flesh, I mean, so we want to pay close attention to the key that Paul gives us here in Romans and also in that parallel passage in, in, in Philippians 4. I mean, the key that opens the door is your relationship to the source of true joy. Notice what, what Paul says next, the second explanation that he gives is we rejoice through the work of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 11. And not only this, not only all of these blessings... Let me give you a final climactic blessing. What else accompanies your justification? But we also exalt in God. We also glory in God. We also now actually love God. We enjoy God. And we do that through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. You don't rejoice God on your own. You rejoice rejoice in God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And what's specifically about the Lord Jesus Christ? Through whom we have now received the reconciliation. He's now reconciled God to us. Torn down that that enmity between us and God. That's the ground of joy that we stand on in Christ and through Christ now that he has reconciled us. That is a huge blessing, isn't it? And here's where he qualifies it as a Christian characteristic. This is, not, this is only possible for someone who, who knows Jesus, who has come through Christ. It's only possible for somebody that, who has been reconciled to God. And Paul's point is a man or a woman who has been reconciled to God and had their sins forgiven and has been made a child of the King through Jesus Christ. That's a person who glories and rejoices in, in the Lord. I mean, think about it. You know this. If you know your sin, and if you're saved, you know your sin. You know your heart better than anybody else. And if you know your sin, and you know your Savior, then you'll rejoice in the Lord. To him who has been forgiven much, that person loves much. Look how parallel that is to Philippians 4. Paul in 5.11 Not only this, but we also glory in God. We rejoice in God. In Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord. Always again, I will say rejoice. And the key phrase is in the Lord. Christians find their joy in the Lord, not in circumstances. Your relationship to Jesus and his relationship to you governs your rejoicing. And you can keep on rejoicing in the Lord regardless of what may come upon you, because biblical joy is rooted in Christ. Again, it's not looking for a silver, silver lining in things. It's not an oh well resolution. It's not a better day is coming attitude. It's faith. It's an expression of faith that says God is enough. Can I ask you a really difficult question? Is Jesus enough? for you to be joyful? Or do you need other things as well? Is he sufficient for you to be glad today? Or is there something you find lacking 
in him or, or with him? If the answer is you need other things, then you might need to take some inventory of your, your heart. doesn't mean you might not want other things. doesn't mean that other things might not be good. But the Lord is the object of our rejoicing, the ground of our, our rejoicing. Uh, in Luke 10, Jesus uses the same word, and he actually helps us understand, I think, what God means here. I mean, this is the passage where Jesus sends out the 70 to preach the gospel, and they return and give him a report. And, and here's, the, here's the report, Luke 10, verse 17. The 70 returned with joy... Notice that. They return with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. And here's the key. Watch him flip this. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. And there it is. You see that? Don't rejoice in this. They come rejoicing in this. Don't rejoice in this, but rejoice in, in that. It's to take your eye off of one thing, and it's to place it on something else, something even better. And that's the key to rejoicing, the object. It can even be a good thing that you're looking away from. You, you, you look away from other things and you look toward the Lord. He is your joy. No gimmicks, no special hype, no mood music, no spice, just Jesus. It's casting your eye and an intentional focus on Him. I mean, Christ is the engine of joy. He's the wood that burns the, the fires of rejoicing in a Christian's heart. And He is what ignites it to begin with. And he is what keeps it burning. When the water of difficulties are splashed all over our hearts, I mean, rejoicing then is to resolutely look by an act of faith at the one who is your Savior and to meditate on him and to then to render praise to God because of who he is. It's to turn your eyes upon Jesus in every circumstance. And that's the reach of that parallel passage in, in Philippians 4, immediately followed with a repetition. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. I love how P.T. O'Brien translated that verse. He said, the idea is keep on rejoicing in the Lord at all times, regardless of what may come upon you. You see how that's only possible for a genuine believer? Only possible for somebody who has the Spirit of God in them? It's not possible by the arm of your flesh. And the word always and everything is, is something that Paul adds there. What's he doing in that word? And he's doubling down with a second command to do the same thing. I, I mean, without that one word, it, it might, you might conclude that rejoicing comes and goes like, like, like human happiness. But it doesn't because the source doesn't move for a believer. Now, I don't have to explain to you, explain too much what in everything means. I mean, the question that will flood your mind is, is how? I mean, how can I do that, that, that in, in everything? Like losses and pain and, 
in suffering. And while you're wondering that, don't forget the positive side of, of, that, of things, the things that can take your eyes off of Jesus in, in the other way, like success or ease or material things or, 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 or authority or, or power. You can be rejoicing in those things and not in the Lord as well. It's not just the negative things that come in life. And to answer that question, how you remember that God's method to teach us is not just by precept, but it's also through people. I mean, we learn by command, and we also learn by copy. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. And I've told you that, that I've learned how to do this by watching others live it out, and so, and so have you. I, I watched Theda Lewis, the lady that was instrumental in leading me to the, to the Lord, come to church on Wednesday nights, two days after her chemo treatment, struggle to stand during praise note time because so she could say God was so good to her. I remember listening to Barbara Adkins here in this church share her testimony decades later with the same tenderness and humility as a newborn Christian. I mean, it was just as real to her today as it was the day that she came to to Christ. I watched a pastor in one of our TES churches three years ago bury his five-year-old that was killed by the very truck that he was driving and say, God is good. You saw an example of it with a Christian woman stand and give testimony of her husband at the funeral this past weekend, this past Friday. That's what it looks like. Circumstance by circumstance, you look at it and you say, Jesus loved me and died for me. He is worthy. And then you do it. And that takes ongoing faith. Ongoing faith in the one that, that, that you serve. And so the repetition that follows in the word, I will say it again, or nevertheless, is like, is like a defiant statement. I mean, it's like Paul saying, no, I'm serious. Rejoice in the Lord in everything. It encompasses what we, what, what we feel when we, we have a command that's contrary to our feelings and contrary to our circumstances. It's like saying, God says, trust Him, and yet there's, there's nothing but reasons to doubt. Nevertheless, I will trust Him. I mean, that, that's the idea, I think, that Paul's giving here. It's a doubling down on faith in the faith of adversity, face of adversity. It's coming to the moment where you have to choose. Will you believe? and do what God has said or slip into unbelief and give up. Paul is saying, I am not giving up. So let me ask you, if we're looking at this parallel passage in Philippians 4, do you need the first command or the second one? Remember, there are two commands in Philippians 4. Rejoice. Again, I say, doubling down, rejoice. Do you need the first rejoice or do you need the second rejoice? Um, are, are you not even looking to the Lord to begin with? And so God is saying in the first command, put your eyes on me. Stop rejoicing in everything else and rejoice in me. Or have you done that? Have you, have you come to the Lord and now it's hard and you're tempted to, to give up? So, so you need the second command where Paul says, don't do it. Keep your focus on Christ. He's, he's worth it. I mean, rejoicing in God is something that only Christians can do. In fact, if God is not the center of your joy, He's not the center of your life, He's not what the reason that you're living, there's something seriously wrong. 
Because heaven is all about him. Which is why we as Christians rejoice in him now. I mean, if you don't love Jesus now, you're not going to enjoy heaven. Because heaven's all about him. But here's what's so amazing about God's grace. If you don't love him now, he loves you in spite of that. You remember those earlier passages? <laughs> while we were helpless, while we were ungodly, while we were sinners, while we were enemies, God loves you while you're helpless, ungodly, as his enemy, and seeing that love is what can lead you to repentance. It's the kindness of God. And it's something that he grants. Do you glory in him? If you don't, why don't you look at the cross and ask yourself, why not? Why don't you look at the cross and see the love that God demonstrated there in that place, knowing your sin and knowing what he has done? Look there. And why would you not glory in the God that would do something like that for you and for me, there is no good logical reason, is there? And so Paul says the ultimate climactic blessing that accompanies justification is you don't just get all of the benefits, you don't just get all of the gifts, you actually get the giver of the gifts. You get to love God, and then you get to be with him, not only now, but forever and ever and ever and ever. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we, we are so thankful that you produce this, this joy in us. Oh, Lord, it doesn't mean that we don't weep. It doesn't mean that we enjoy every aspect of life. It doesn't mean that we're Pollyanna. It means that we have genuine faith that expresses itself in the face of all of that. Genuine faith that looks to the Lord Jesus as our hope, as our joy in him alone, and we say he is enough. So help us, Father, to bring you great glory on this earth until we get to see you face to face. And I pray for anyone who's listening to a message like this and says, I don't understand that at all. Or I know that there's, that's something lacking in me. I pray that today would be the day they would look to the cross, they would turn their eyes away from whatever they're hoping in and trusting in, even themselves, and they would look to you, the one who died and was buried and rose again, that they might have life. They'd repent and believe and be saved. In Jesus' name, amen.